Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm director of ECFR and today we're going to be talking about Paris. On the 13th of November, eight terrorists from or inspired by the so-called Islamic State carried out seven coordinated terror attacks in Paris that left 130 people dead. This is the worst terrorist attack in the history of France since World War II, and Europe has shown outrage and messages of solidarity have been pouring in from every corner of the continent. But behind these discussions of solidarity, there are tensions starting to emerge within France and around the European Union. This week, France called on the rest of the European Union to uh, show military solidarity with it by evoking Article 42.7 of the Treaty of the European Union. And we're going to discuss what that means and some of the divisions which are emerging in our continent. To go through these questions, I'm very happy to be joined by Manuel lafont Rapnoui, who is the head of ECFR's Paris office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And before joining ECFR in 2015, he worked for the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs and dealt with a lot of these issues of war and peace there. Second uh, guest is Anthony Dworkin, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who has been working on human rights, democracy and justice and the laws of war for many years as well. So why don't we start with you, Manuel? Um, what kind of solidarity is, is France looking for at the moment? Well, I think um, there's, there's a lot of um, um, comfort uh, that came from the all the messages of solidarity, in particular from uh, European uh, partners. Um, and uh, the problem for the French, uh, from the French perspective, is that there were the same kind of uh, messages of solidarity uh, from all over the world uh, in January earlier this year. Um, but solidarity is, uh, is instrumental, but not sufficient to actually tackle uh, the terrorist threat. And so what we need to do is turn that solidarity into um, actual decisions or actions that need to be implemented uh, to um, address that threat and respond to it. And, and I am not just speaking in terms of... Uh, Security, I'm speaking in broader terms. Obviously, there will be a, a major and probably central component uh, of uh, the response uh, and the um, response that France is expecting. But, um, and, and that's the, the focus that uh, President Hollande uh, has chosen. But we will probably need uh, more than that. So before we go into some of those other elements, do you, do you want to explain a bit what Article 42.7 of the Treaty of European Union uh, does? Is of course. So that treaty is a provision uh, of mutual defence uh, between uh, members of the European Union. Basically, it says that if one member state is attacked, uh, then uh, the others shall provide uh, support uh, by all means available to the member state that was attacked. Um, and when uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian, who is the French uh, Minister for Defence, came to Brussels at an informal meeting of the Ministers of Defence of the European Union, that was uh, on Tuesday, um, he actually um, invoked 
that provision and then held a co press conference where he said that it was before all a political act to invoke that very uh, provision. The idea that there is solidarity between members of the European Union on that topic is something important and giving it a framework for that solidarity to be turned into material support uh, is basically what this uh, article uh, provides. That's the framework. So um, not many people have heard of Article 42.7. The, the much more famous one is, is um, Article 5 of NATO, which is a, a similar clause. Why did France not invoke that? Because presumably America has got more uh, military assets than the European Union does. Well, probably because the kind of um, support that uh, the French are expecting have uh, not that much to do with what the uh, Americans can bring to the table. If you're thinking in terms of joining the fight against Daesh in Syria, well, actually, there's already a U.S.-led coalition. So uh, this is not that much about bringing the U.S. on board. Uh, but in terms of strikes uh, in Syria and not just in Iraq against Daesh, right now, the only European um, power that is um, perpetrating such strikes in Syria against Daesh is France. So where there is room for improvement is on the European side, or at least that's the way the French authorities see, see it. Then second thing is, obviously not all uh, member states of the European Union are going to join the strikes, the airstrikes uh, against Daesh in Syria. That, that's a given and nobody is expecting that among uh, official circles. But one thing that other EU members uh, could do is basically backfill where the French are currently deployed so that French can redeploy its assets where it's needed. And that's not just in Syria. There's a lot of uh, French military troops these days in France in a kind of a um, domestic security operation. The president has invoked the state of emergency and the military are part of all the security operations that you've heard about. Uh, and if that was to be sustained much longer, um, then the French military would be of a stretch. If the European can join in the Sahel uh, or in the Central African Republic or in other places where the French are deployed, that would be helpful. I don't think the US are going to uh, to do that. But European uh, EU fellow members uh, could be able to do that. And that would be an important move uh, for the French. So, Anthony, um, what kind of responses do you think we're going to see from, from other member states to this invocation of Article 42.7? Well, I think what we'll see and what we're seeing already um, is a kind of a will to respond. I think states will want to show their solidarity um, and their support for France, um, recognizing the seriousness of this attack. But I think that the kind of support that we see um, that's forthcoming is likely to vary significantly from one member state to another. Yeah, no, no, but can you get more concrete? So in Britain, for example, there, there's a debate about whether um, Britain should join the bombing campaign against ISIS in, in Syria rather than just doing it in Iraq. What other country, what's going on in other countries? Well, yeah, exactly. So Britain is the one country where military action in Syria was already um, under consideration. Um, Prime Minister David Cameron, I think, is pretty keen um, and has made that clear to launch attacks against the IS in Syria. Uh, and I think this will probably increase his determination to do that. 
Um, the only other country where I think that's currently under consideration within the EU is Denmark, which has tended to be on the forefront of military action overseas, um, and they have a, a strong military tradition. Um, apart from that, I think what we're likely to see is more along the lines of what Manuel said, um, countries thinking about are they going to, for instance, support French operations in Mali, um, perhaps under the, um, in the context of um, either UN operations there or um, some sort of EU operations. So, yeah, exactly. Germany has already announced that they are going to do more in Mali and, um, you know, I think that's a, a significant step and clearly shows, I think, their awareness of the importance of, of doing something, of being seen to respond, even though, of course, in Germany there are um, serious obstacles to any kind of military intervention in Syria. But the fact that they're going to, to step up in Mali, I think, shows uh, their recognition of the importance of being seen to do something. So um, I'd like to move on uh, shortly to, to some of the domestic um, implications of this and how that's challenging European unity as well. But before we do that, maybe we can talk about um, the bigger foreign policy kind of strategy around this. Um, it looks like there's uh, an attempt, Manuel, to uh, show some steel to be active, but what is the plan? Is there a, even a plan uh, behind the French actions? What kind of end game are they looking for? So that's, that's the whole debate. And I must say, it's not uh, very clear from what is happening now. There's a lot of uh, emphasis on the military side of the plan. Uh, I think uh, that is pretty clear. Um, the French president, I said that he didn't just want it to contain Daesh, but he wanted to destroy it. Um, this is very martial. Um, then the question is, um, what is the strategy uh, within which you uh, implement that military action? I think, I hope, uh, nobody uh, in, in France uh, among the uh, official circles thinks that only airstrikes can uh, destroy Daesh, uh, not just in Syria, but including in its ability to uh, plot and lead terrorist attacks on uh, European soil. Um, and that, in any case, is probably not going to happen just with uh, support from uh, one or two more uh, European countries. So you would need something that looks like a bigger strategy than just military um, action. One of the big questions that people are asking is about Russia. So I was talking to a French official last night who said that actually that was one of the reasons why that France didn't want to invoke Article 5 was because it would complicate the um, cooperation with Russia. Um, but there are also questions about to what extent France is willing to put the fight against Daesh ahead of the fight against Assad as well. Um, in Geneva, uh, sorry, in, in the Vienna talks, for example, that was one of the, the uh, issues which was fudged where um, people have left it open. Um, uh, but how do you see the relationship with Russia emerging? So that, that's exactly the point. And the, the strategy is, uh, there's two ways to read what is happening now. Either there's a pivot to Russia, and uh, one believes that um, the priority is Daesh, that uh, we don't like Assad, but that's um, devil we can live with. Whereas Daesh, it's a devil that is threatening us. 
and therefore we have to uh, prioritize and that's why we have to uh, go with Russia because the Russians are actually uh, quite instrumental uh, in this uh, perspective if that's the strategy you hold to. The other way to read what is happening now is that it's not just the Paris attacks that have changed the environment and the landscape and the calculations of all the stakeholders in that crisis. Uh, but there was also an attack in Beirut. There was also, obviously, the attack against the Russian uh, airplane. And so everybody is recalculating. The U.S. are recalculating. The Russians are recalculating. Um, some Arab partners might be recalculating, too. Uh, Turkey is probably recalculating after the, uh, its recent elections. And so the other reading would be there's an opening for some kind of foreign diplomacy in trying to reorganize the way the international community is ready to address these things. What Minister Fabius has said to explain the current uh, situation is we are not at a moment where we can uh, ask for Assad departure as a starting point, but there is no way that you can ask for Assad staying at power at a starting point. So that becomes a topic for discussion between all the stakeholders, that includes Russia, my guess is that more than speaking with the Russians, you need to speak also with the regional powers, and that includes both the Gulf countries, including uh, Saudi Arabia and the Iranians, and you know that uh, there's also a rapprochement to be done between these two. Uh, so there's, there's a big moment for foreign policy and diplomacy, and that's what we need to see now, how, how France is able to do that and not be alone at giving it a try. So... Anthony, one of the things you've written a lot about over the years, well, since 9-11, I suppose, is the whole idea of, of the global war on terror. Um, to what extent is France's uh, war on terror going to be something which other countries feel that they can get behind? Or um, are there some of the risks uh, which the U.S., found after it's after it declared its war on terror in 9-11 um uh, embedded in the approach that François Hollande and, and others have, have uh have gone down right well actually um as it happened I've been in Paris in the last few days speaking to French officials um in the in the foreign ministry and the defense department um precisely about the way that they see military operations overseas against these terrorist groups and the picture that emerged was quite interesting. Um, essentially, in terms of the, the strategy, they do see what you would call a global war on terror. That is, they see France confronted by a series of different Islamist extremist groups, both in the Levant, in Syria and Iraq, and in the Sahel, um, and potentially in other places. And they see this as one single struggle where the aim is essentially, in terms of military, the military component. As, and as you say, that's one component along with diplomacy, along with counterterror at home and so on. But the military aim is to scale back or deny the territory that these groups control. Because in French thinking, there's a very clear sense that what makes them dangerous is when they can establish control over a certain space, they can use it to train, they can use it as a pole of attraction to draw in recruits, um, build up their resources. If the territory happens to contain oil, so much the better. Um, and then they can use that to launch attacks. 
So that really is the goal, and they do see this as a single struggle. But in legal terms, and here there's quite a sharp difference between France and the United States, they see it as a series of self-contained conflicts. So there's one conflict in Mali and neighboring countries in the Sahel, and there's a separate conflict in Iraq and Syria. So I think what we'll see is the French going quite aggressively after the people they regard as enemies in these conflicts, and that includes the use of targeting against what they call high-value individuals, uh, which is targeted killings. Um, But what we are not going to see, I think, is any sort of spillover where um, people attached to Islamic State um, that might be found in Europe or that might be found in Libya are seen as part of the same kind of armed conflict, the same war. So I think we're a long way from anything like a French Guantanamo or uh, French strikes in Libya or in other individual countries. So we're going to see some quite aggressive military action, but it's going to be contained. And I think that kind of much more traditional legal reading will certainly reassure a lot of European allies um, that, that we're not going to be on w- the global war on terror part two. Maybe so, I can add a few points on that. Um, I, I fully agree with Anthony, and it's going to be contained, uh, this military action, also because of um, the French uh, military capabilities. Uh, we are not in a situation where we can uh, launch a full-fledged air and ground and sea operation, so that, that will definitely be different. Yet, in the French uh, political context, you begin to hear about uh, indefinite detention for people who will be suspected of uh, terrorist uh, acts. Um, you have uh, Hollande coming at Parliament and asking for a strong, sharp increase of uh, national security powers with a kind of a package of um, provisions that some people are beginning to compare with the Patriot Act. So there is a kind of a context and atmosphere in France um, with a lot of uh, very strong opinion support for the military action, very strong support for all the internal domestic security measures that have been announced um, that that will not play in in the direction of containment. It will really be for the government to um, restrain itself because the the atmosphere in Paris will not restrain it. that's definitely a first thing. The other thing uh, with a more European um, perspective is that the reason why France is currently the only one leading those airstrikes um, in Syria against Daesh within uh, EU members is also a question of uh, international law. Uh, and actually, at the beginning of the US-led coalition against Daesh, French position uh, itself was that not that much for legal uh, reasons, also for political reasons, but was to strike only on Iraqi territories. Um, And other Europeans right now who are part of the coalition do strike or support strikes on Iraqi soil, but have also legal um, problems, uh, concerns, with uh, perpetrating those strikes against Daesh in Syria. So that's, that's something that will be interesting to follow, I think. So um, that provides a very good segue to the domestic divisions. Um, Anthony, do you want to lay out some of the divisions that, as you see them emerging between um, uh, member states, well, both within different countries, because 
the atmosphere in France has been very politicised with um, uh, rival leaders like Nicolas Sarkozy and, and, and Marine Le Pen attacking the, the government's response, but also between different countries in terms of how the, the, the aftermath of the attacks is handled. And particularly interesting to hear how it intersects with the refugee crisis. Yes, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not in a position to talk in depth about some of the member states, but I think the intersection with the refugee crisis is going to make this a, a particularly telling moment uh, for the European Union, because already the EU was facing it in the, the wave of refugees. I think something of a, of a defining moment, a testing point, um, it, this is a, a crisis in which really what's happening around Europe, outside European borders, is having a kind of direct impact within the EU in a way that maybe um, could be said to be unprecedented. And one of the effects that it's having is to expose some of the fault lines between those countries that are ready to accept migrants, um, that have a kind of, uh, as it were, a kind of cultural predisposition towards incorporating um, people from overseas and those that are more resistant to that. Um, and the question of distributing the, the migrants around the EU has already proved to be very problematic. Um, on top of that, now we have a second crisis, which is in a very similar way, uh, raising fears that the EU is losing control over its borders, losing its ability to keep out the kind of dangerous impacts of events beyond its shores. And it's very easy for these two to flow together. Um, and I think already we see in a number of member states rhetoric pointing out that the migrants, is Islamic, Muslim people coming into these countries could be the carriers of this terrorist virus. Um, and I think, you know, so far Germany, which is at the epicenter of the refugee crisis, um, German political class has been quite strong in resisting any linkage. Um, but other countries have been perhaps, uh, you see some strong political movements in some of the Eastern um, European member states to, to link these two. And I think that's, uh, that's going to really make this a dangerous moment, um, which could feed political extremism and cause some real strains. So, Manuel, uh, François Hollande um, today reaffirmed the French commitment to take in 30,000 refugees. So he seems to be pushing back against that um, mood in, in France. But there are questions about whether a border-free Europe is viable in an age of terror. How do you see that debate emerging? Well, in France, it's been a debate for a long time now. Um, and it's not just the uh, extreme uh, right or left uh, in France that have been uh, discussing about that. But mainstream political parties are quite vocal also on this issue of borders. And, uh, and sometimes they are uh, divided within themselves. Um, former President Sarkozy, for instance, has been calling for a revamped Schengen for a long time now, uh, out of security uh, concerns. Um, but obviously this has uh, become more and more a concern and a, a hot political topic uh, with the refugee crisis, um, even though France is definitely not the, the EU country that was most exposed to refugee flows. Um, actually, when the French authorities went to Germany to try to take in some refugees that were in Germany, it was hard to find um, 
sufficient number of people uh, to come to France. Uh, the, most of the refugees wanted to stay in Germany or go to Sweden, for instance. Um, and obviously now with those terrorist attacks, uh, the debate is uh, being even worse, which uh, is um, very uh, worrying in my sense is that the debate is really a lot about closing borders and not about how can we work either to uh, strengthen the external borders of the EU, which, uh, as we know, uh, is a, should be a priority, uh, and it doesn't either address the issue of how do we cooperate more between uh, European members. And yet, given the Belgian dimension of the plots uh, that led to the attack in Paris uh, last Friday, I think this is uh, very clear. Most of the nine terrorists uh, that were part of the plot, uh, those who know, uh, those whom we know, uh, most of them are French. And so even with uh, border control, most of them uh, can actually, uh, could have entered from Belgium to France, even with controls, they would not have been prevented from entering in France. The question is, what was lacking was intelligence sharing between the French and the Belgians. And this is not because of a bad quality of a security cooperation between the two countries, because I think this is one country with which France has enjoyed a, a good cooperation. But it's not that we are not organized in the way, for instance, that we can do intelligence sharing. We are not organized in a way where we can be effectively curtailing uh, arms illicit trafficking. So that seems to be uh, a real uh, source of bad blood between France and Belgium at the moment as well. I think the, the Belgian prime minister complained about the fact that um, uh, a lot of French politicians seem to be implying that the attacks came from Belgium. But there is obviously a massive job to be done to, to restore a sense of control in different capitals in a sense that political elites know what they're doing in order to stop the refugee crisis and uh, its long-term effects being completely intertwined with the aftermath of Paris and the emergence of a fortress Europe with, which relies on, on repression and on closed borders rather than uh, intelligent cooperation between member states and a reaffirmation of the values of the open society going forward. I think we should return to a lot of those themes in the weeks ahead, but it's been a fascinating uh, discussion. And we have one last thing to do before the end of this podcast, which is the, the bookshelf segment. Anthony, do you want to go first? What book are you reading at the moment? Yeah, well, I actually have two books um, that both go to this subject. Uh, one is a French book, and Manuel will have to forgive my poor pronunciation, but it's by a French journalist called David Revaud dallon um, and it's called Les Guerres du Président, and effectively it's tracing the history of how François Hollande became the kind of the military champion in Europe of the fight against um, Islamism in the Sahel, in Iraq, and, and now in Syria. And the other one is by an American journalist. Um, it's the American counterpart, um, and that's by a guy called Charlie Savage, who's written this book, Power Wars, which is uh, an in-depth 700-page uh, analysis of all the legal evolution of uh, President Obama as he grappled with drones, uh, with Guantanamo, and so on. So it's not a book to be taken lightly, but it is pretty definitive on the subject. What about you, Manuel? So given the circumstances in Paris, I think I should rather be reading literature or poetry to remember that there's also beauty in this world. But I happen to be... Uh, 
reading Pierre Asner's latest book, which is La Revanche des Passions, The Revenge of Patience, which is a fascinating collection of articles that he wrote uh, in the recent years, basically building upon a, a quote by Raymond Aron, which is, those who believe that people will follow their interests rather than their patients have not understood anything to the 20th century. And, and it's really a very interesting uh, um, grid to read uh, the situation where we are at the 21st century. Wow, I love Pierre Hazenaire, so I, I, I uh, would love to read that book. I've been reading two uh, rival French books, uh, which are looking more at the internal questions. One is uh, a book by a, a, a far-right French intellectual called Renaud Camus, called Le Grand Remplacement, which is a, a sort of conspiracy theory arguing that, that the, uh, there is a sort of campaign afoot to, to replace the European, the French population of European origin with um, uh, uh, migrants from the Islamic world and from, from Africa. Um, and the other is a, a, a sort of a counter book called Le Grand Repli, which means the, the, the great withdrawal by three French academics called uh, Nicolas Bancel, Pascal Blanchard and Ahmed Bouquer, which looks at some of the sort of post-colonial uh, baggage which France has been grappling with as it comes to terms with its uh, emergence as a, as a multi-ethnic, uh, multicultural uh, society. So that brings to an end uh, this discussion and there are links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But there's also a special page on our website on responding to Paris looking at both uh, the events as they unfold in France, but above all, the implications of the attacks for Europe's foreign policy. Some great pieces, including one by uh, Manuel and his colleagues in the Paris office called Forging a European Resolve. There's a piece by Nick Whitney uh, looking at what real solidarity with France would mean on the military front, a piece um, looking at the whole question of, of uh, migrations and ISIS's uh, uh, attempts to, to stop people from taking in refugees by Mattia Toaldo and many, many other pieces. So that brings this podcast to an end from Manuel Lafon-Hapnoui, Anthony Dworkin and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro and our researcher is Ulrike Franke. <laughs>